0: Hi everyone, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ed Pulford, one of the hosts of the channel. On the podcast today we have Tatiana Linkhoyeva, who's Assistant Professor of Japanese History in the Department of History at New York University, and she'll be talking about her new book, Revolution Goes East, Imperial Japan and Soviet Communism, which was published in 2020, this year, by Cornell University Press. As even the period we call the post-Cold War seems to be receding further into the past, it can be easy to forget that almost exactly a century ago, the thing whose global spread had some people worried was not a virus, but an idea. In the years following 1917's October Revolution in Russia, socialism had taken hold in one place, and, even if world revolution ultimately failed to materialise, for a time it looked to be gaining considerable ground. Also not unlike a viral pandemic, the spread of socialism elicited Rorschach-like test responses in almost every corner of the world, exposing and exacerbating insecurities and political divisions, offering powerful emancipatory promises to some, and motivating panicked overreactions from some worried elites. As Tatiana Linhojeva shows in her richly detailed Revolution Goes East, Japanese responses to Soviet socialism during the 1920s and 30s took all these myriad forms and more. Exploring how various factions within the government, the military, and society at large balanced their views of the October Revolution as an ideological and a geopolitical cataclysm, Lin deftly weaves in and out of historical events occurring in Japan itself, the North Asian theatres of the Russian Civil War, and Japan's widening East Asian imperial domain. Just as importantly, and I should say fascinatingly, the author also teases out the many tangled strands of leftist thought percolating through Japanese political and intellectual circles at this time, dissecting the complex ways in which anarchists, socialists, and Japan's incidentally still-existing Communist Party understood the red tide which was sweeping across Eurasia. But a century on from all of that, the author is here to say more about it, so I'll say Tatiana Linhoyeva, welcome to the podcast.
1: Um, hello, uh, thank you for having me and thank you for the introduction.
0: <laughs> My pleasure. Um, before we talk about the book itself and, uh, and the amazing richness of events it describes, um, I'll ask you perhaps the, about how you came to be interested in Japan and its response to, to Red October, as it's sometimes called, and, and your general academic background.
1: Uh yeah sure um so I'm from Russia and I am a Buryat uh, it's a, a Mongol speaking community in the south of Eastern Siberia uh, uh near Lake Baikal and uh, so I went to study at the Moscow State University and I I uh, went to the uh, faculty of philosophy and I was studying uh, I decided to study Japanese philosophy because um you know everyone else was studying western philosophy and um you know western european culture and that seemed to me not very exciting and um that was late 1990s in russia and um there was this uh, a boom on things uh, japanese you know haruki murakami was just translated into russian and um Japan was something very exotic, very far away, very unfamiliar. But at the same time, for me, being, uh, you know, coming from Asia, from this very Buddhist background, it was sort of familiar and unfamiliar. So I decided uh, that I want to study that. And um, incidentally, um, uh, we had, um, you know, the Siberian intervention, the Japanese intervention to the Russian Revolution, which I will discuss later, um, in Buryatia, uh, you know, the Japanese intervention troops stationed, actually, in 1919, 1920. And after the Second World War in 1945-46, we also had Japanese prisoners of war um, uh, in Buryatia. Um, so there, there was this connection and, I, you know, I heard stories about these Japanese prisoners and Japanese intervention. So there was this interest as well. Um, so uh, then I went to study the uh, Tokyo, uh, Tokyo University as, a, um, as an exchange student on the Japanese uh, scholarship. And um, for my master's degree, I, um, I wrote about uh, Japanese uh, modern philosophy uh, during the interwar period. And I compared Japanese uh, philosophy with the Russian existentialist philosophy. Um, so I look at, um, you know, Dostoevsky and Berdiaev and uh, Leon Shestov. So I discovered that um, those um, um, Russian philosophers and Russian writers were extremely popular in uh, modern Japan. Uh, you know, they were translated, they were read. Uh, Miki Kiyoshi, one of the most famous Japanese philosophers, actually described the 1930s as the Shestovian angst. And, um, and uh, the Japanese, modern Japanese, were really attracted to this uh, Russian critique of the West and uh, you know Western capitalist modernity. So this is something that I did in um, uh, for my master, and so then for my PhD uh, studies, I came to University of California, at Berkeley, and over there I took classes on on Russian and Japanese history, a lot of social thought and Marxism. And um, um, so to kind of realize that in English uh, uh, language scholarship, you know, this relationship between Russia, um, Imperial Russia and Japan or Soviet Russia and Japan is not um, explored very well, um, despite the apparent uh, influence of Russian social thought, you know, Russian literature on Japanese uh, on the Japanese culture and Japanese also political thought, um, and uh, so I uh, I took I decided to work on uh, Japanese Marxism, Japanese left, and um, so I felt that Japanese Marxists and Japanese social thinkers were uh, sort of in this constant conversation or dialogue uh, with Russian social uh, thought and thinkers. And, um, and historians, uh, you know, sort of overlook that. And that's what I try to do in my, in my, uh, in my work.
0: Hmm, hmm. And so the book Revolution Goes East that we're talking about then grew out of your PhD dissertation?
1: Yes, yes. This is my reworked uh, PhD dissertation.
0: I see. And, and how much kind of reworking occurred? Uh, I mean, yeah. I was interested in these kind of process <laughs> so, questions.
1: Yeah, no, no, it's a, it's a great question. And it's it's. I think it's good to know, you know, the process of writing and uh, rethinking. Um, so the PhD dissertation, which I uh, completed in 2014, is basically part two of the book, which is about the Japanese left. It's a pure sort of intellectual uh, and bit of institutional history, um, and it's about internal debates um, of uh, Japanese socialists in relation to the Russian Revolution, and you know, um, who are the Bolsheviks? What is the Soviet state, and so on. However, after I completed, and after you know, some people uh, commented, uh, other scholars commented on this uh, on this uh, dissertation. I realized that. Um, you know, I can expand actually the, uh, my argument and look at the, at the, um, uh, policymakers, at the, um, uh, at the government, at the political elites, um, and, uh, the relationship between, uh, Russia and the Russian government, Soviet government and the Japanese government. Um, because people were interested in this no- especially interested in this notion of, um, anti-communism. Um, and, um, not only how it was understood by the socialists, um, or the left, but also, uh, were, you know, just intellectuals, but also how it was understood by the, uh, political elites. And this is one of the, one of the kind of main arguments of the book, how we can, what, to unpack this, the category of anti-communism, uh, in modern Japan.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And it, it kind of comes together, I think, really well. It's interesting knowing that that uh, latter part has this origin in, in the dissertation and that the, 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 the former part um, is something that was composed later. It actually reads without, sen- without any sense of that being a seam between them. So I think it's fantastic that you've kind of woven everything so deftly together. Um, but. Uh, having kind of got an idea then of where it all came from, I think we should uh, jump into talking about the book itself. Um, And the introduction is a really interesting bit of background, I think, on uh, uh, just kind of hints at some key concerns which run throughout the book, uh, more to do with what you just outlined, I think, actually, uh, to do with uh, sort of historic perceptions within Japan of what Russia represents. Um, And you begin with uh, this idea that the Russian Revolution itself kind of Posed a double question for a lot of people observing it throughout the world, both over the merits of a socialist system and this new set of political ideals, but also around the kind of uh, idea of national liberation and, uh, as you say, kind of uh, an alternative narrative to that of uh, Western imperialist capitalism. Um, but you also note that there's, yeah, the kind of parallel dualism in Japan's response. Uh, and, and as I mentioned briefly in the introduction there, there's kind of a, a geopolitical dimension and um, a, an ideological response. So could you kind of sketch out how this double Japanese response uh, sort of played out? Who were the people who had these different uh, geopolitical versus ideological views of what was going on?
1: Um, yeah, so the introduction is titled Two Russias. Um, and um uh so my sort of basic framework that uh the image of russia um uh, there were two images uh of russia that um actually has uh that had roots in um you know in the 17th century even so my take in the, in the end uh on the uh, on this issue of the responses to the russian revolution i took it as a long durée so i went you know it's like centuries back because i think pre-existing um assumptions pre- pre-existing, pre-existing stereotypes and thinking about um Russia and its place in the region that really informed uh opinions of the elite and intellectuals and common people about this you know international communism and soviet communism um, so in in the introduction i kind of i, I laid out these pre uh, those pre-existing um assumptions about Russia and also i discussed this in chapter 1 so two Russia's um first Russia <laughs> Russia number one is um, is this neighbor in the north. Um uh that uh, so the Russia was moving to the Pacific uh, ocean since the seventeenth century, you know, this uh, kind of uh, colonizing Siberia and then moving to the uh, uh, north. Uh, and at the same time, the Tokugawa Japan is also, you know, moving north, exploring, uh, Hokkaido, you know, dealing with the Aino population. So eventually, in the, um, well, late, late 18th century, early 19th century, these two, um, these two countries, uh, met. Um, and, um, for Tokugawa Japan and later for the major government, Russia represented this sort of an, um, a threat, um, and, An enemy that is actively trying to sort of colonize those lands that Tokugawa actually also claim, put claim on. Um, So Russia had been always this uh, powerful, if not the most powerful um, enemy or threat in the region. Um, So the triple intervention of 1898, uh, the Russo Japanese War of 1904, 1905. So the examples, um, so the most visible examples, or known examples of this tension between Imperial Japan and Imperial um, Russia. So this kind of uh, understanding of Russia as this neighbor, uh, the threat from the north, uh, persisted even after the, after 1917. Um, the sort of the famous uh, battle of Khan um, uh, in 1938, um, which is called in Russians the Battle of Khalkhin Gol. Um, so th- this one is, you know, usually in, in the literature you read it as the, uh, you know, the this uh, conflict between communists and anti-communist forces, and I kind of shift this focus. It was not just, you know, battle between two ideologies. It was, uh, it, it was, you know, following the same logic as it was during the Russo-Japanese War. Is the is the sort of inter-imperial conflict, and um, Russia number two is. Um, what I mentioned in my introduction, um, this um, as Japan rapidly uh, modernized and grappled with these various uh, problems of, um, you know, Western capitalist modernity, they found in Russia and its uh, uh, and Russian modern experience a sort of brother um, in arms. Um, in, um, Russia, this, um, modernization process, right? And all this kind of social ills and social problems emerging from it started earlier. And, um, Russia produced this, you know, devastating critique of the West and capitalism in its literature and social thought. So modern Japanese found many similarities between their own experience and, uh, the, uh, in Russian experience. With modernity, and they felt a lot of sympathy with that. So it's um, anti-Western critique, anti-capitalist critique, and um, um, a, a third element is the Russian critique of its own autocracy, of its own monarchy and the uh, bureaucratic government. And um, as I show in my book, by 1917, the um, you know the, the dissatisfaction uh, with the um, With its its own government, is growing among the among the Japanese people, and they see a lot of sort of similarities and affinities between, you know, between the two countries. Um, Another, um, I think, I will maybe explore it uh, later in this conversation. Um, As they are looking at the Russian modern experience, they kind of um, they are trying to place uh, Russia um, in this, you know, West East. Nexus and Russia is occupying this very sort of in-between position. It's not completely west, and it's not the east, right? Um, and uh, more and more for the modern Japanese, uh, their own perception of their own sort of cultural uh, position in the region is, is sort of the same. It's not. It's in between, right? It's it's uh, it's, it's the east and the west uh, at the same time. And uh, so this in between position of Russia and Japan, there was something also um, kind of they thought about that as well.
0: Right, and I guess yeah, as you say, this these kind of dual ideas. Yeah, uh, I mean, if if Japan was kind of mirroring, I guess some quite long standing debates within Russia as well over Russia's destiny as a you know as a, a Western or an Eastern power. That this kind of uh, idea of being um, what blocks idea of being Scythians and and are we in the Uh, the kind of European fold, or are we something else? Um, Those same in-betweennesses, as you say, did play out in what we know a lot about, I guess, I would say, relatively of this part of Japanese history, which is military expansion and the building of an empire in continental East Asia. Um, So, I mean, how did the army, which I guess was playing an increasingly important role over this period in Japan, digest these two different uh, strands of reaction to Russia um and and what sort of form did yeah this approach to Russia take in the expansion of Japan's empire over this period?
1: Um yeah so um let me first talk about the period before 1917. Um so this you know Yamagata Aritomo, the founder of the Japanese army, you know, one of the most powerful statesmen um, he drafted the, um, the national defense plan. I think that's how it's called in 1873, where he identified Imperial Russia as the main threat to Imperial Japan. And, um, and this is, this is, you know, this is kind of set the tone for, uh, the subsequent, um, decades. Um, you know, for the army before 1917, after 1917, um, Russia remained a threat. And uh, and I, as I will explain later, it's not kind of ideology and geopolitical considerations; they overlapped in the army's thinking about Russia. Um, the uh, the another moment that I stressed in in the book is the decade uh, before nineteen seventeen. So after the Russian Revolution, oh sorry, after the Russo-Japanese War, which was over, you know, influence um, over Korea, as we you know, Russia lost and Japan won. Um, uh, Russia and Japan signed a series of treaties or agreements. Um, uh, there were also secret agreements, uh, which basically divided East Asia into two spheres of influences and uh, sort of out in Mongolia and North Manchuria uh, with its uh, Chinese Eastern Railway went under the Russian sphere of influence and South Manchuria, Korea, under the Japanese. So everyone was happy uh, sort of with this arrangement. And, um, well, except, of course, people on those territories. <laughs> um, sure. Sure. I mean, yes, I'm in Russia and in, Russia and in Japan. So... Um, and then 1917 happens, and suddenly there is no more Empire of Russia. There is a power vacuum in the region, and um, now the army considers this as the golden opportunity to expand its influence and, you know, to secure the South Maturin railway, to, you know, to pacify the Koreans, and so there are like yeah many reasons, but they use this opportunity as to expand. I think you asked me before uh sorry I um the sort of geopolitical and ideological sort of divisions in understanding of, of the Russian revolution
0: Yeah I mean uh, I guess the kind of uh, way that that these different things played out among the uh, yeah among the different power bases I think you've you've um explained that pretty well and and, and the kind of balance between the two um as it operated within Japan, and as it mapped itself onto uh, reactions to Russia, um, in terms of, uh, I guess, the more ideological end of this spectrum, um, it's easy to assume that in lots of countries in the world, you know, the arrival of a socialist regime and a kind of anti-monarchist, um, you know, new country really um, in the world was a threat automatically to. Uh, Establishments everywhere, and that you know, workers would rise up, and that you know, um, I guess, um, groups who had previously been disenfranchised would be able to seize power. Is this, I mean, is this a dynamic we can say was the case in Japan itself? Was the establishment, the kind of imperial authorities of Japan, automatically anti Soviet and anti communist? And how did the kind of response to this revolution? Play out among groups within the left. I mean, we'll, we'll get onto this in more detail uh, later. But but could you sketch out the kind of response from yeah from leftist groups too?
1: Okay, yeah. So um, the Japanese establishment um, was not monolith, right? Um, there were different groups, um, and these different groups had their own traditions of you know thinking about foreign policy and domestic policies. Um, and uh, I, um, uh, I sort of I roughly divided these groups into groups who were concerned with geopolitical matters and another group that was concerned with more ideological matters. And so, in geop- geopolitical sort of group, uh, included Ministry of Foreign Affairs, um, the Navy, uh, various Pan Asianist groups, the major nationalist groups um and uh, business circles uh especially business circles that um were related to the fishery and oil and, and also shipyard buildings building um so uh those groups the they were more concerned sort of with the economic and geopolitical issues they actually were uh sort of let's say pro soviet um it doesn't mean they were a pro-communist, they were a pro-Soviet, they, they advocated the establishment of, you know, uh, diplomatic relations with the new Soviet regime. And the, on the other hand, there were these ideological um, groups, I mean, the groups who were concerned with the, you know, co- uh, communist ideology, and uh, uh, they included the uh, Home Ministry, Ministry of Justice, um, various nationalist groups that emerged in, um, uh, during the 1920s, after World War One, obviously the army. Um, and um, um, they were uh, sort of, um, you know, they work on, uh, they were concerned with the growing socialist movement in, in Japan, with the labor strikes, with the peasant riots, uh, with this, uh, you know, feminist movement. There are a lot of, you know, people were like very, very politically active after World War One. Um, so um, another moment is uh, that I make a distinction between anti-Soviet and anti-communist or anti-Sovietism and anti-communism um, um, so sometimes um, those uh, terms kind of mixed or confused and used interchangeably but I, I make a, a distinction between them so if um, um so, um, if, if I, as I discussed with some socialist groups, some of them were uh, against the Soviet Union but accepted communism as an ideology, and there were yes, and there were uh, other groups like these geopolitical groups right who were concerned with foreign affairs, who uh, actually liked the Soviet Union, who wanted to deal with the Soviet Union but rejected the tenets of communism.
0: Right, and I think yeah, sort of teasing out those those nuances is what uh, I guess leads us quite deeply into the world of um, the, some of the internal conflicts and the complications around uh, Japanese society as it as it's as it was itself taking shape and changing a lot uh, at this time. Um, so, I mean, if we jump in uh, to the actual kind of. Uh, body of the book itself we've already touched on quite a lot of the themes of uh, chapter one uh, which looks at this kind of interesting set of parallels between Russian and Japanese experience for example of uh, modernity or industrialization as uh, I guess relative latecomers, uh, if such a term can be applied to these processes which were transforming Western European societies but we can maybe kind of move off move beyond that um to looking at some of the more, I guess, uh, kinetic responses, if you like, which you begin discussing in chapter two. Um, And in particular, this intervention, which, uh, as you've already mentioned, made its way all the way up to Buryatia and uh, deep into Russian territory. So um, notwithstanding the kind of conflicts and the duality of Japanese views of what had been happening in Russia uh, all the way to the west. this intervention occurred. So could you say kind of why it was that um, the Japanese authorities decided to make this kind of big push into uh, Russian territory and what happened uh, when it did after
1: 1917? Um, Yeah, so the, um, yes, October 1917, um, the the um, uh, provisional government uh, collapsed. The monarchy already was um, abolished in March 1917, and country throughout the 1917 country was basically disintegrating. And um, military attaché from Petersburg, Japanese military attaché from Petersburg, Moscow, Harbin, Vladivostok, Irkutsk, they were writing to uh, to Tokyo. Um, You know, with the reports about what's going on in Russia, horrified absolutely uh, by the disintegration of the Russian army, concerned with the uh, Russia's ability to continue to fight in the uh, World War One, they were very concerned with the radicalized workers and especially railroad workers, which you know then hampered the uh, the the working of the Trans-Siberian railway. Um, and, uh, in, in the same reports, they, uh, those officers stationed in, in Russia, they suggest the, gov- the Japanese government to seriously consider, um, um, you know, moving the troops into the Russian Far East and Eastern Siberia um so there are very, very different reasons you know to because it threatens the stability of the japanese empire especially in korea uh, because the japanese cannot continue um uh, continue you know because they need to ensure that russia stays in the great war or you know that it continues and um they were also concerned with this Bolshevik Party and Vladimir Lenin. No one knew who who they were, and um, at the kind of 1917, 1918, the um, main understanding was that uh, that was a you know um, a party sponsored by Germany and working for Germany and for German interests. Um, so. But as I said before, the establishment, the Japanese establishment was not unified. Uh, there were parties uh, who resisted the intervention, um, especially thinking about the British and the American response to the Japanese intervention. And there were uh, um, those who, uh, the radicals, right, and the army who wanted uh, to intervene in the late, um, immediately, November, December 1917. Anyway, so the more peaceful sort of peace party um, or restrain the more radical party, um, and um, um, they were awaiting actually more sort of official uh, announcement of the um, allied foreign intervention. So that happens in summer 1918. Um, the Japanese move uh, more than six, more than seventy thousand troops to the Russian uh, territory, and another sixty-six thousand troops to northern Manchuria. So if you look at this Northeast Asia, there were 120,000 Japanese troops in 1918 against the 7,000 American troops, like 2,000 French and, you know, very few of, um, of other powers. So the, you know, it became a big concern for other, for the allies, especially the United States. But what is interesting, if you look at the, Official announcement of the intervention: The Japanese government never identified the Bolsheviks as the enemy, and uh, they never announced that this intervention was to stop communism um, or to fight the Bolsheviks. So you know, they, um, it was mainly to uh, protect the um, you know the Japanese nationals on the Russian territory and to you know to pacify the region amidst the Russian the you know the Russian civil war. Um, and uh, if you also look at the um, sort of diplomatic communication, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs uh, of Japan, he uh, was very keen not to identify Vladimir Lenin or the Bolsheviks as you know as these usurpers, or um, you know not not to antagonize the Soviet government against Japan. So they were very careful with that.
0: Mm, mm. Yeah, that's fascinating, because I think, you know, it's easy to sort of draw these broad lines and I guess often influenced by the subsequent division between notionally uh, a kind of Cold War division between a capitalist West and a a socialist, uh, well, East, in as much as that makes sense in this context. but actually, as you say, you know, the Japanese response all the way along was was much more complicated. And so although there were British and French and American interventions um, in, I guess, both uh, Vladivostok and, and also kind of the far north and some other places, they weren't necessarily quite lined up behind the same agendas. Um, as you sort of uh, outline in the book, there was a kind of, uh, I guess, somewhat of a withdrawal of this not particularly well known, indeed, uh, intervention deep into Siberia um, to a point where um, Japan's kind of uh, occupation of parts of uh, what was still the Russian Far East um, was limited to the very furthest eastern stretches. And I guess I'd be curious because it's a chapter of history that lots of people don't know much about or have heard sort of small hints of. If you would say something about the Far Eastern Republic, which was set up um, in in the kind of intervening years between. Uh, the revolution and the, the eventual declaration, I guess, of the Soviet Union in 1922. What was this Far Eastern Republic, uh, and what what was it sort of designed to do? And how did Japan respond to it?
1: Um, yeah, so the the Bolshevik governments um, you know, had a lot of setbacks initially in the first two three years. Um, the sort of the size of Russia was reduced to basically old Moscovy territory, right, um, and uh, so the, the the country basically disintegrated um, this uh, the 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 civil war between the Reds and the Whites is you know raging. And um but uh by nineteen twenty the, the so the Russians I mean, sorry, the Bolsheviks are kind of steadily regaining territory after territory, but the the, Bolshe, the Japanese still refused to recognize um the Soviet government, although the um sort of the uh ministry of Foreign Affairs of the Soviet government approached uh, the Japanese government in 1919 to establish diplomatic relations so the Japanese refused that because still in 1920s they still um um some of in the government still saw that the the Bolshevik government may not survive longer um another thing is that the Soviet the Soviets are fighting this very brutal war with Poland in 1920 um, there was a Soviet Polish war which was draining a lot of kind of energy and uh, manpower from the Soviet government and they, they had no uh, possibility to fight with the Japanese in the east so as a, as a, um, as a sort of a way of destruction um, the, the Soviets established this um, Far Eastern Republic in 1920. And um, there is more research coming on this, uh, uh, on this republic in, um, in English recently, but um, um, sort of the Republic, the Republic government uh, self-proclaimed, um, um, so sort of the, the basis was not, uh, it was not a communist Republic, but it was sort of more social democratic which was more acceptable for the Japanese government. And the Japanese government agreed to communicate and to establish relations with the, this uh, Republic, uh, Far Eastern Republic, um, on the premise that it will, it is not communist and it will not try to uh, propagate communism on the Japanese territories. Um, yeah, so there was um, back and forth um, uh, conferences and talks between the Representatives of the republic and, and Japan, um, and um, as the kind of officially the civil, Russian Civil War ended in 1922, the federal the Vyysnaya Republic uh, was um, um, became part of the of the of new Soviet Russia, and it disappeared yeah.
0: Got it. Well, know, I think that, at least speaking personally, clarifies a lot of things for me, because that, as you say, that establishment of the Far Eastern Republic as a sort of buffer in between uh, the kind of, I guess, uh, growing realm of the Bolsheviks and and Japan, it's hard to make sense of, I think, if, if, as you... Have already outlined very well. Um, If you don't understand that Japan itself was quite conflicted, or there was a lot going on within Japan's agenda, because it looks, at least, sort of viewed with with hindsight, so so transparently like a a kind of ploy which lasted a couple of years and then was just subsumed into the Soviet Union anyway. You know, I guess at least I've always wondered why Japan put up with that, Um, but now yeah, you know, I think
1: if you look at this, how they talk about the republic the japanese actually and i don't understand why but they really believed that the republic might stay and that that, that the soviet government actually would um uh would keep it as a buffer state uh in you know <laughs> and um and yeah so that was a bit of a shock for them when that was um became part of, of the soviet yeah
0: Right, right. Well, and and but it, it, I guess yeah, eventually did, and uh, yeah, Chita lost its capital status and so on. Um, but once it had, um, I guess uh, there was obviously a, a new set of calculations to be made from the Japanese side. Um, and in the next couple of chapters, three and four, you outline uh, and explore in depth indeed some of the kind of negotiations with both these broad ideas of. Um, anti-Westernism and, and the kind of potential sympathy that I guess Japan had with the Soviet idea of rejecting Western capitalism, but then the kind of counterbalance of trying to stop communism as an ideology spreading within Japan. So could you kind of give us a picture of how these two things, these two sort of agendas played out uh, once the Soviet Union was sort of up and running um, in the 20s and moving moving through time?
1: Yeah. Um... So in those chapters in chapter um 3 I look at uh, Goto Shinpei um a very sort of uh, a very famous politician the first president of the South Manchurian Railway a very powerful man who after the uh, failed uh, after 1922, after the, it was obvious that the Siberian intervention failed, began actively promote the recognition of the Soviet Union in Japan and establishment of um, very close relationship between uh, Russia and um, and uh, Japan. And um, on the level of ideas, it's interesting. He um, he uh, published several articles and in newspapers and journals, made several speeches um about communism as an ideology and he mentioned that communism is a very utopian idea and um, it's it's uh, it's not possible to realize those ideas in a state form um he pointed at the development of the russian communist party at the new economic policy that were implemented in russia in uh, 1921 um and um and uh, he he was telling his um Fellows in the government and the general sort of public, that look, the world revolution didn't happen and will not happen. The uh, communists, Russian communists failed in accomplishing that. They actually cannot build communism um, in their own country. They are looking back; kind of, they're turning back to sort of you know capitalist relations. Um, and even if they are uh, building, even if they will succeed in building communism in their own country, it doesn't mean that. Um, Japan, uh, will become communist. And he gives this example, like we have sort of 50, rela- 50 years of relationship with the United States, and we didn't become a republic. So it will not happen right, that we will not become communists overnight. Um, so it's totally fine to deal with the communists. Then he pointed, um, so this is this is one argument. Second argument is that he pointed to the, he and other actually pan-Asianists um uh, pointed to the um, developments in Northeast Asia, uh, specifically the establishment of the Soviet Mongolia at the, um, at the kind of Soviet return to the Chinese Eastern Railway. And they were pointed like, look, this, uh, this new Soviet um, um, leadership, they are actually continuing uh, the same uh, policies as imperial Russia. So Soviet Russia is actually um, is, uh, is an heir to Imperial Russia and um, is concerned with the safety of its borders, with uh, with preservation of you know sphere of influences. And um as a country, as a kind of a normal state, um Russia is you know is a is a uh, is a is a good partner. Um and um the third argument go to and other Pan- is made. Uh, is paying attention to uh, the uh, Soviet anti-Western and anti-imperialist critique, and so they flipped it and uh, turned. The, you know, kind of agreed with this anti-imperialist critique, um, communist anti-imperialist critique, arguing that you know there is the the British, the you know the Americans. Uh, all these imperialists come into the region and we need to unite uh, with the Soviet Union in order to sort of expel, right, <laughs> um, in order to uh, um, kind of move, uh, to remove those imperialist powers from, you know, from Asia. Um, Gotha Shinpei also talked about, you know, he used this term old continent versus the new continent, and by a new continent he means the uh, United States, an old continent. And old um, continent for him is basically, you know, Eurasia. It included Russia, China, and Japan. And he uh, he went to Russia, to Soviet Union in 1927, 28. He met Stalin several times, and in his conversation with uh, Stalin, he um, he kind of he. Um, talked about this Eurasian sort of bloc or Eurasian alliance, which would be invincible, he said, um, mm-hmm. and um, uh, and uh, beneficial for everyone. So, um, yeah, and this was all sort of cloaked in this rhetoric of anti-Western and anti-imperialist uh, movement.
0: Right, right. And so, as you say, at least some influential voices within the establishment there were saying, you know, oh, don't worry, uh, communism isn't this um, uh, disease. I guess you said that certain circles in Japan were calling it a, a, a pesto, like a, a, a plague, right, <laughs> that could could infect Japan. Um, but actually that leads us well on to um, the, the second part of the book as a whole, so I'll maybe uh, take us on there. Um, there were, nevertheless, strands of leftist ideas uh, within Japan that actually considerably predated 1917. Um, Now, they elicited a a whole host of of anti-communist responses, which, as you say, are important to differentiate from the idea of anti-Sovietism. But um, could you give us a picture of what these different strands of leftist thought were um, before
1: 1917 uh, in in Japan? Um, Yeah. So, modern Japan had a a rich and long-standing socialist tradition um, you know, the works of, uh, Western socialist thought were translated from 1870s. Um, there was, a, in the first socialist party was created in 1890s. And, um, the Japanese socialist movement is actually is rooted in the, um, in the people's, uh, rights movement. Um, of 1880s, which uh, you know advocated for the political and economic rights of the general populace, populace, um, uh, and um, and the the socialism in Japan was developing very quickly, um, very quickly, so that in 1907 um, 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 there were several sort of parties and several groups in inside the Japanese uh, socialist movement. And uh, one of those parties became very radical. Uh, uh, They uh, claimed to be anarchists. They were led by the famous um, anarchist socialist uh, Kotoko Shusui. Um, And um, they, um, in 1910, uh, a group of of Japanese anarchists were arrested. um, And... um, uh, and were um, accused of uh, plotting to assassinate major emperor. In 1911, 11 of them were hanged. Um, It's called a high-treason incident. Um, And after that um, very public show trial of those anarchists, the Japanese socialist movement went underground. Um, Another moment I want to mention is um, this... um, Japanese socialists and um, anyone interested in social thought so before 1917, they were, uh, they knew about Russia um, and Russian socialist movement, um, especially the Russian populists or Narodniki. Um, they were extremely popular in um, in uh, Japan. Um, when Kotoku Shisui went for one year to San Francisco, um, he uh, met a lot of um, he communicated with uh, Peter, Peter Kropotkin, a Russian uh, and other Russian radical emigre in California. Um, after the Russo-Japanese War, uh, Vladimir Lenin actually wrote to asked um, Kotoku to distribute pamphlets, radical pamphlets, among uh, Russian prisoners of war, uh, which uh, this Japanese socialist did. Um, so they knew about uh, about this Narodniki uh, Russian populace, They knew about terrorist acts um, that were, uh, you know, assassinations that were rampant in Imperial Russia in those times. Um, so you know, when the Bolshevik Revolution happened in 1917, it was a surprise, but at the same time, it was not. <laughs> they, they knew about this very radical tradition in in Russia.
0: Right, right, and and the kind of um I guess anarchist tradition in particular, which I guess uh, as you say, has some of these deeper roots, um I found particularly interesting your description of them, um, not least some of these, I guess doctrinal uh, debates over what the you know correct agenda for socialist parties and communist movements and, and indeed anarchists um, around the world was in the wake of in the wake of 1917, um, and uh, you highlight, for example. Uh, one really fascinating point. I just thought I'd draw attention to this figure, um, Osugi Sakae, who has a sort of dispute with Lenin over the idea of um, the uh, of, a, of a revolutionary party being led by an intellectual vanguard, um, and Lenin kind of advocating this view that you know there was a, a should be an intellectual leadership to a socialist movement, whereas um, Osugi says no, you know everyone should be equal and the ideas should come from the workers. And I thought that was a curious. Uh, moment of of, of a Japanese party advocating um, greater, uh, I guess, in some ways, equality or lack of hierarchy. Um, All these fascinating moments that pepper your descriptions of these movements and their debates. Um, But in chapter six, um, I I thought I'd uh, just ask about what's what's in there, because the Japanese Communist Party, um, as a kind of more formal movement, that uh, arose after 1917, I think is particularly interesting and is a party that, as I mentioned in the intro, is still uh, alive or still around. And you see them, especially in in Hokkaido, actually, quite a a lot of them driving around. Um, So I wonder, um, could you say something about this sort of more officially sanctioned version of Japanese leftism that arose uh, following the revolution and how it kind of came together under the auspices of Comintern and so on?
1: Yeah, so in part two, I'm looking at um at the different strands of uh, Japanese socialism after 1917. So I look at anarchism. In chapter five, chapter six is the early JCP, the Japanese Communist Party, and then next chapter is National Socialist. So I kind of take this 1917 as this you know intellectual earthquake after which, um the landscape was different. And within the Japanese uh, Communist Party, I also look at you know, at the sort of growing polarization uh, of different uh, communist groups, and this growing polarization happened uh, because they understood the Russian Revolution differently. <laughs> um, so I want to kind of emphasize the point that I'm looking only at the Japanese Communist Party in the 1920s. I don't look at the you know at the subsequent debates on Japanese capitalism, most famous one right in the 1930s. Um, So the Japanese Communist Party was established officially in 1922 as a branch of the Comintern, the Communist International. Um, The Comintern was very interested in Japan initially because they considered Japan to be the most industrialized uh, country in Asia, which was (laughs) true. Um, And if you have this very uh, uh, strong industry, then you will have the most progressive proletariat. And, and they targeted this uh, Japanese proletariat they were very interested in anarchists by the way um and um, uh, but at the same time they knew very little about about japan its history and its culture um another interesting point is the common term as the as the russian russia sorry uh, the Bolshevik um, gained control over the Russian far east. And Eastern Siberia, they established commentary um offices, you know, in Vladivostok, um in uh, Irkutsk, and then later in Shanghai. So they are sending um sort of the agents to Japan, and those agents, interestingly, they were not obviously Russians, they were Chinese or Korean communists. Um, and so they invite these Japanese socialists, they approached the famous figures as Yamakawa Hitoshi and Sakai Tashikko and um, Osugi Sakai um, to kind of establish contacts and to travel to Russia to meet Russian Bolsheviks. Um, interestingly, it was anarchists who traveled first to Russia, to Soviet Russia, to attended all these different um, um conferences. Um, Yamakawa refused to go because he didn't know who they were. And that was really dangerous to cross, you know, um, to go to Shanghai and then to, um, to Russia, whereas the civil war still was going on. But, um, so anyway, the, the JCP was established. Um, Yamakawa Hitoshi wrote the manifesto and the program in English, and it was sent to Moscow. And it's still in the Comintern archives in Moscow. It's published, and I use this published Comintern archives for my um, for this book. Um, it's fascinating. You're looking at this. It's not only official documents, but also letters that were sent between the Russians and the Japanese. You know, receipts. Um, uh, uh, you know apologies <laughs> explanations um and the you know the comment funded the jcp they send a lot of money um another it's it's like history is fascinating this early period um people who carried those funds um you know it was money or sometimes diamonds even on gold um some of those a, uh, Japanese envoys, right, who were supposed to bring this fund to Japan, they basically disappeared along the way. <laughs> um, yeah, so there were a couple of instances when a huge sum of money um, and diamonds uh, were supposed to arrive to Tokyo, but they didn't because the, person, the people just disappeared. And uh, and uh, the, the functioning of the organization was sort of paralyzed for a year because they didn't have basic money and they would, they would write like, apologies to Moscow like you know we are very sorry <laughs> but in the early period there's this very random people traveled between you know these places uh, a lot of adventurers, a lot of opportunists, and this commentary money was sort of an like, easy money but I digress um, so um, the JCP um, so there, you know there is this Communists, the sympathizers, no one knows exactly what is uh, what is communism, what I mean, Soviet communism, right? Not the Marxist, but Soviet communism um, in its Leninist form. Um, and sort of they, they grapple and sort of struggle with um, these two big questions. They knew very well Marx, uh, Karl Marx, right? Um, uh, conclusion that the Socialist. the next sort of socialist revolution would not happen in backward Russia. Um, so they, they are thinking, why actually the first socialist revolution in history happened in backward Russia against Marx's predictions? Um, um, you know, what is then, how did they manage to skip sort of advanced capitalism? And um, how is it going to build that? And another question is, uh, if if the Russians succeeded, does it mean that the uh, model, the Russian model, is universal and applicable everywhere? Um, then, um, actually, as Japan is sort of far away, the the um, the, bo- the the borders really well guarded, the commenter turned uh, their attention to China uh, very quickly and. Um, All the, you know, programs, all the efforts were um, uh, directed to China and um, uh, building a Chinese communist movement uh, and party and so on. So they designed this uh, program for revolutions in East Asia with China in mind. And uh, whatever directives the Russians sent to uh, Japan were, um, you know, prioritized China, which really sort of (laughs) puzzled, uh, to say the least, uh, the Japanese movement. Socialism, because this is sort of the, um, uh, the main argument of this whole um, chapter and, and the book, is that the Japanese, communists, and socialists um, um, appropriated this unilinear um, understanding of historical development. Right. and um, if you place sort of Japan and China on this sort of you know, on, on, on the scale, um, China or Japan was most progressive' right? was most, more progressive than China, and it meant that the Japanese uh, communist movement, the Japanese proletariat was more advanced than Chinese or Korean. Um, proletariat. Uh, They were more class conscious, they were more organized and so on. And so for the Japanese communists, it was very um, um, curious, why should the goals and tactics and priorities of Japanese communist movement uh, prioritize China rather than their own domestic uh, struggle?
0: Mm, mm. Well, I guess, I mean, yeah, yeah, fermenting world revolution was a a pretty, a pretty complicated business from the common point of view, and sounds like they weren't necessarily quite uh, uh, adapted to the task, even um, as there were also setbacks from the japanese side including as you say people running away with sacks of money and stuff um i mean in addition to to the, the jcp and the anarchists as i've mentioned you also um give us a picture of this national social, socialist movement um which you know i think uh, is something that uh, is is not very uh, well known and, and um, has a, an interesting relationship to, I guess, German and Italian counterparts arising at a similar time. But I'll leave uh, listeners to delve into some of that themselves, since we're uh, running up a bit against the time. Um, but just sort of lastly, on the leftist movements, um, there were these kind of several different strands, as you uh, outline in such rich detail in the book. Um, how much kind of effort was there to make Common cause and to find commonality between them, and obviously, as we know from Japan's subsequent history, <laughs> there wasn't a socialist revolution in Japan, so these these people didn't succeed. Um, so, why was that? Why why was there sort of ultimately, do you think, no kind of concerted and successful attempt to get a strong left movement off the ground?
1: Um, yeah, it's uh, it's fascinating to see how this previous. You know, old friends they were all, it's it's not, it's not it was not a big group, uh, socialists, and uh, they were all, you know, great friends. And then, how s- during the 1920s they grow apart from each other, become anarchists, national socialists, and, uh, and communists. Um, and the basis for that is like, yeah, so what is the Russian Revolution for this conflict between those old friends and what should we do in Japan? Very ideological uh, conflicts. Um, And uh, by the late 1920s, they don't speak to each other. Uh, They don't speak to each other. They, um, um, you know, bashing each other in uh, their own newspapers and periodicals, uh, calling themselves traitors um, and so on. So um, it's a very, um, it's a intransigent um uh, situation by the late nineteen twenties. Um mm. and I think the main um the reason for that is that each of those groups um um had their own idea about you know what was Japan, modern Japan, and what Japan's future should look like should look like and, and each of them thought that their program or their understanding was better than and more correct one than the mm. other yes
0: interesting yeah and i i mean it's some, somewhat ironic that a socialist revolution then that the first successful socialist revolution would actually have led to the uh, kind of collapse of uh, uh, or at least uh, i mean a, a major setback in these these leftist movements um but as you say this is in a sense what sheds such interesting light on the status of Japan at the time. And uh, ultimately, I think, you know, we we therefore get this really a- amazing picture of the Russian Revolution as a kind of a, a mirror in which uh, many different Japanese groups looked and saw different images of, of, as you say, where Japan was going and what it was going to be. Um, but there's a huge amount more, uh, Tatiana, in the book that uh, we haven't had time to touch on today, but which, as I say, I would uh, really encourage listeners to delve into when they get hold of the book themselves. Um, but uh, we've taken up quite a bit of your time talking about this. Um, and before we let you go, I'll just ask uh, what projects have you kind of had on the go since this book uh, was finished and came out?
1: Yeah, thank you. Um, so my next project is about the uh, the Mongols, actually, <laughs> the Mongols and the Japanese and the Soviets. So I look at, the as I mentioned before, I'm um, from Buryatia, which is, a, you know, mongols basically in, inside russia so when i was doing the siberian intervention part um i kind of stumbled upon several uh buriats uh in 1919 who were trying to gain independence from russia and who were trying to you know build a great mongolian state basically a mongolian nation state but and they sought for uh they sought help from the japanese well it didn't realize um this project didn't realize but I uh, was curious about this sort of small people on the borders. Let's say these people who are borderland people and how they manage uh, their lives um, between, uh, you know, between these big empires—the Soviet empire and the Japanese empire and the Chinese empire as well. So um, my, uh, for now, I'm looking at these Buryat uh, communities. Um, and in three different localities, so ones who stayed inside Russia, Soviet Russia, became communists and built a republic there. Uh, there's a community, Buryat, who migrated to Mongolia, Soviet Mongolia, and the third group, Buryats, who escaped after the revolution to Manchuria and became part of the Japanese puppet state, Manchukuo. And so, looking at these uh, different communities, I want to look at the Soviet and Japanese modernizing policies. um, How they manage these Mongol communities on the borders, and so it's sort of comparative um, uh, history of empires.
0: Fantastic. Well, that sounds yeah really excellent and a a really suitable continuation, I think, of some of the brilliant insights uh, that this book has offered us. Um, But Tatiana. Thank you so much for appearing on the show today. Uh, it was really wonderful talking to you. Oh,
1: thank you. Uh, it was fun.
0: <laughs> and uh, listeners, thank you too. I hope you also have had some fun listening to this. Uh, this was New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network, and it will be back with you again very soon. Goodbye.